I'd like to to be able to put the stories that have lived in my brain for so long. I'd like to be able to put those out into the world and hire people and and make a real difference in terms of how our hiring practices can be different. Hire as many LGBTQ people as possible for this. I'd like to give people a platform to grow their own careers because let me tell you, man, I've got a lot to pay forward. People have been very kind to me. And so that's really, it's really, really important to me to be able to, to parlay any, any success I have and any opportunities I have to, to hire more trans people, more queer people, more people from these other marginalized communities that historically get left out. Imagine being assigned female at birth, growing up and feeling isolated at school, having your sexuality weaponized against you at age 12 by so-called friends, and coming out and identifying as pansexual at age 19. Well, this was just the beginning of this week's guest, Sav Rogers' life. We cover a lot of ground in this episode. As Sav recounts the challenges he's faced and had to overcome, Sav is a shining example of resilience in the face of ignorance and bigotry, strength of character with an indomitable spirit to survive. Sav is now an award-winning writer and director, currently in the final stages of post-production, of his first feature called Chasing Chasing Amy, a documentary about how 1990s rom-com Chasing Amy, directed by Kevin Smith and starring Ben Affleck, provided him with a depiction of a fluid sexuality that helped Sav live his authentic self as pansexual, embracing the tagline of the movie, it's not who you love, but how, following his 2017 TED Talk, where Sav described the impact of Chasing Amy, he tweeted it, and Kevin Smith, the director, saw it and connected with Sav and is now collaborating with Sav on Chasing Chasing Amy. Very meta. Sav and I go on to discuss the challenges we still face in the media with the limited casting of trans people in shows and films and how the media reinforces LGBTQ bias and the need for changes in how sexuality is depicted in education. Sav's life story so far is evidence of manifesting the life you want to live and how serendipity opens doors and opportunities that then bring that manifestation to life. I hope you enjoy the optimism and energy of Sav Rogers. Sav, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Hello, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's a real honour, and I have to give a big shout out to one of our previous guests who recommended that we interview you next, which is Yana. But Yana was interviewed way back last year so this isn't exactly next it's a a good probably nine months down the line so it's wonderful to finally uh, be doing this interview yeah thank you for your patience Uh, sometimes I'm quick on an email and sometimes I forget I even have an account so I appreciate you know you having me on anyway yeah that's great anyway so before we really get into your uh, your life as a writer and an award-winning film director and some of the extraordinary work you're doing we always start uh, by really diving into people's backstory and their and their journey from birth and where they grew up and the impact of their parental support on their on their life journey and their world worldview now i i can't haven't found exactly where you're born in kansas but i believe that is the state you were born no uh oh right I was actually born on an army base in louisiana so a little further south but um i don't remember living in louisiana if that tells you how long we were there (laughs) <laughs> okay. All right then. So, well, if you could maybe tell us about the that upbringing and the impact of your uh, your parents and the direction in life that you've gone. Sure. Let's see. Born on an army base in Fort Polk, Louisiana. My mom told me I cost twenty seven dollars, so that was a pretty cheap baby to have. So I've been told. And what does that mean? Twenty seven dollars. I think it costs way more to have a baby normally, but I think when you're in the military, it's not as expensive uh, uh, to have a baby. So I cost twenty seven whole dollars. Maybe she was that... in, she was in the military. No, my biological father was, and right, so okay. they were they'd been married for a few years. They had me. They split up when I was three, and then kind of began began this this journey of me and my mom kind of being us against the world for a while when I was growing up, and then. I think when I was five, I moved to Kansas. We moved to Maryland very briefly. But since we moved back when I was like five again, I might have moved when I was four. It's all inconsequential. But I moved back to Kansas around the time I was five, started halfway through kindergarten there, and then had my entire schooling from kindergarten through uh, college in the great state of Kansas. And, you know, but it was really me and my mom for a while. And she's been my biggest support system through everything. And 
eventually my stepdad jim came along he's got a great youtube channel called modern vintage gamer which is oh like, right okay Gotta which is like it's 600,000 subscribers i mean i'm, I'm telling wow. you i went to film school and my dad started a youtube channel and so we've kind of had these like strange like video paths that are like you know sometimes crossover mostly not but that's what we both do professionally now is is some sort of video production which is nice i've never heard anyone describe the dad as having a modern vintage gaming channel yeah that's a, that's <laughs> the name modern a... vintage gamer and what, what vintage games does he play i think his channel's like and, and sometimes I'll try to watch his videos and I totally don't understand what he's talking about because it's like he's speaking another language, even though I like video games. But he really talks about like how systems are built, like gaming, programming, things like that. Um, and now he's a video game developer in addition oh. to doing YouTube, which is really rad. But he just basically put a lifetime's worth of skills and learning about the history of video games, the history of consoles, how to code, how to do all these things. And he turned it into a profession, which, you know, I just admire endlessly. That's brilliant. Oh, well, definitely. I'll put that in the, put that in the show notes. <laughs> so uh, what about siblings? No uh, siblings on my mom's side. Have some step-siblings on my biological father's side, some step-siblings and two half-siblings. Mm -hmm. But we've never really been close or anything like that. So I basically grew up as an only child with the mm -hmm. exception of some sporadic visits to go see my biological father. Mm-hmm. What type of values do you think your mother instilled in you? Uh, perseverance. It's a big one. She worked against a lot to, you know, end up with the good life that she has now. My, you know, my grandfather was another big parental figure in my life. He and my grandmother, and they always taught me about integrity and how important that was. You know, it was always important to do the right thing when nobody was looking. Um, mm -hmm. And so I try to, you know, live by that. Nobody's perfect, but I try to do that. And that's and that's really important to me. But I mean, my mom is just really all about perseverance and how it's like, you know, you just can't, you just have to stay the course and, mm -hmm. and trust your gut. I mean, though, those are two really big things that I think she taught me. Mm. What was her career? She worked in insurance for 20 years to support me mostly. And then Recently, she was able to quit her job and, and work for herself, which, you know, and, and work with my dad on his YouTube channel and, and growing that business. And so that's been really cool to see, to have her, you know, go from this 20-year career doing, mm. a, you know, a corporate job and to see her be able to move on to something where she gets to set her own hours and, and have her own autonomy to do things. That's been, been really nice to see for her. That's very cool. Yeah. So I hear so many things about social media platforms and um, the platforms exploiting people. You don't really hear too many people that are making money from them. And I, I've got audiences like that. So it's, yeah. it's great to hear that there are people that are building businesses on platforms like YouTube. Yeah. And the biggest thing my dad always says is about consistency. I mean, I think he definitely, you know, I don't know how the algorithm works. I don't know how any of that works, but he was consistent in uploading and, and growing his audience and growing his channel and just putting out, you know, new content at the same time every week. And those videos really hit. And people who, like, people who don't know that that's my dad, who I know will, like, watch his videos or be like, hey, you should check this out. And I'm like, oh, that's going, yep. <laughs> like, I'll post a picture with him on Facebook and people will be like, your dad is Modern Vintage Gamer. It's super sweet and super funny. Wow. Yeah. So so he's sort of, he's a known, a known entity. But like my dad will go out to the grocery store pre-pandemic and people will be like, oh, my God, I watch your YouTube channel. You know, like it's and he gets a big head about it, but it's very sweet. <laughs> That's amazing. So yeah. how did how does he grow? Sorry, this is a podcast about you, but I'm fascinated. How does he grow his audience? I, I think it's posting the same time every week, making sure that his videos are engaging and that they're authentic to his voice, which I think is how you grow any kind of, you know, career in media or entertainment is making sure the contents, you know, I know a lot of people hate mm -hmm. that word, but the content of whatever you're making is true to your voice. And I think everything he makes is something that he's, you know, really interested in. And he has uh -huh. a vested interest in like teaching other people about it, which is really mm -hmm. rad. So I have a question. You're a creator yourself. How did your mother nurture your curiosity and creativity? Or was it something just innate in you? I think growing up, living like an only child uh, I was kind of left to my own devices a lot you know when she'd be at work or, or something like that and I, and I had a hard time in school and so I just kind of you know escaped into not like not academically per se but mm -hmm. socially I didn't ha know a lot of social cues I was very it was a big struggle for me 
to make friends and, and to have it and to not be like weird, you know, like mm-hmm. I, I didn't know I was weird until I realized other people were making fun of me. And I was like, oh, this sucks. OK, but what I would do because I was, you know, always in my own head at that same time, I would write stories. That was mainly what I did. And I would watch a lot of movies and TV and I would often repeat the same content over and over and over again because i was just really interested in it. i was interested in mining for more information more you know more lore what have you without mm-hmm. really knowing what i was doing but so my mom was really encouraging she would you know take me to the movies when we could but she didn't really restrict my tv time because she knew i, I really enjoyed it she would read stories that i wrote things like that and i couldn't have asked for a more supportive parent in that way because mm-hmm. she was you know she just wanted me to be happy and those were the things that made me really happy at that time that's very cool i had a guest that cancelled so i had to put up a podcast this week of just me reflecting on some of my previous guests and i was going through some of the comments some of the things some of them had said that really inspired me and captured my imagination and i interviewed a woman called emily oberman who's a partner at pentagram design one of the big design firms they do all the idents for saturday night live and cool. she she described her mother and father and said they always cultivated in me being proud of being a beautiful weirdo. <laughs> and I really liked it. And she said that's, um, they, they deliberately went out to try and make her feel different and be different because they mm-hmm. knew it's difference in the world that marks someone out. And that she right. also does that for her children. So I, that one, that really sort of struck a chord when you were saying and reminded me of that when you were talking there. So maybe we could just talk a bit about what school was like for the, for the young Sav, you said it was it was challenging. Education yeah. educationally, you're obviously had very successful. You're a successful writer, director. You've gone through university, so academically, you were finding it straightforward. I mean, or, or not? Academically, you know, I did okay for a while. I had a, you know, when I was growing up, my my uncle lived with us too, and he was very big on making sure that I got good grades, and so was my mm-hmm. grandpa, and so was my mom. And, you know, I think they thought that was my ticket to somewhere was like through an academic thing, but also to instill like, hey, you should work hard for the things that you want. If you want good grades, you need to work hard for them. And I don't know if that clicked for me. I just knew, oh, I need to get A's or people will be mad at me. (laughs) So Mm. I think I got a lot of A's up until about middle school. And that's when things started to get really challenging for me when I started to realize like how isolated I was and things like that. But I still couldn't articulate it very well as to like what was bothering me what was wrong things like that and when you when you say middle school for people that listeners i have a lot of listeners outside of america middle school is what roughly what age like 12 to 15 okay right right well i went to a junior high they call it middle school now junior high was seventh graders through ninth graders Mm -hmm. typically ninth graders would go to a high school but i had like an old school system when i went there and so but yeah, when I was 12, 13, going into seventh grade, that's when like I was getting A's, but then it was a, a struggle to keep up academically when I started to realize like, oh, this is miserable. Uh-huh. Like this is really hard, you know, socially. And so I, I started to put less and less stock into academic achievement. And it was more about just like getting through the day. Hmm. When I started researching you and we spoke beforehand and, and learned that you did suffer from abuse from other kids at school and friends that certainly seemed to have scarred you for a, an enduring period as you progress through school. And that's a, a defining time in any adolescent's life. I mean, you've said that obviously had, must have had an impact on your educational focus, your focus. But I'd use the term that you describe where they, you said that they weaponized your perceived sexuality against you. Do you mind talking about that? Sure. And, you know, for... For context, I think a lot of people have a hard time in middle school, junior high, high school, whatever you want to call it. I think that period of people's lives are very difficult, even if you are the bully, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I don't know what's informing the reason that you're coming at me so hard, right? But all I knew as a kid, I was like, this feels like a dangerous situation to be in. And it was really concerning. And I, and I do think that people are more, just for the record, I think that people are more than like the worst things that they did in middle school or high school for the most part. Like, I think that, you know, where I grew up, it was very like, you have your parents' politics and I grew up in a fairly conservative area. So like, it's not like, a, I'm not giving people a pass, but I just, I do want to say that like, I know that growing up at all is difficult. And, it, and I was probably a very easy person to take that out on. Because at the time... 
you know, this was before I came out as, as transgender. So, you know, I was assigned female at birth. And so you have this group of guys here and girls. We can talk about the girls later. But, like, hmm. you have this group of guys that, like, you know, I like playing basketball with them. I think we're friends. And then one day after school, it was, like, after I, I think I, I did well in, like, a three-point shootout against them or something like that. <laughs> I, I know. Like, that being the catalyst for this is, is pretty pathetic. But, like – you know, I, I could keep up with them at that age. I, I quickly like plateaued as an athlete, but mm-hmm. for a while there, I was fairly good at basketball and quickly plateaued. But so after school, these kids like surround me. I'm waiting for my mom to pick me up mm-hmm. 12 or 13. I don't remember now. And these guys come up to me and, and I think that we're friends. And then they kind of just start like pushing me after school. They kind of surround me and I'm in a circle and I'm, and I was talking with my friend who was dating one of these guys and it was just it was just devastating when they started like spouting epithets at me and i don't really want to repeat them you can watch uh, my no, ted talk if you want to yeah, yeah of but course. Yeah. it was a lot of like very homophobic maybe there were some transphobic epithets thrown in there where they were just saying like the worst things that they could think of to say to me and i was like what is happening and i looked at my friend for help and she was and she kind of looked away she just looked away and i was like what the what the fuck yeah. is going on here? I don't know if I can swear. Sorry. But yeah, yeah. No, no. Go ahead. I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And so, I didn't know what to do after that. I managed to like get away when my mom came. I don't know if they were gonna punch me. I didn't know if they were gonna. I didn't know what they were gonna do. But it was a very mm-hmm. fearful situation to be in. And that was the closest I ever got to getting beat up for people thinking I was queer as a kid. They thought I was a lesbian. They didn't understand why I dressed like a boy. And people and girls would also say shitty things to me like i remember my senior year of high school there was this girl that came up to me and was like i used to think you were gay but you're cool now and i was supposed to be a compliment and then i had like an english teacher that was like when i told her like you know in ninth grade i told her what happened and she was one of the few people i told because i trusted her she was like well you know you're lucky because like i don't know many people that could have overcome that being you know what people thought of them and Mm -hmm. so it wasn't like you're fine the way you are. It was like, Oh, good thing. They don't think that anymore. (laughs) Like, wow. I mean, and, and, you know, at the time it was before marriage equality was passed in the United States Mm -hmm. and most places. So you would have teachers like debating the existence of LGBTQ people and the validity of it. And, you know, it wasn't openly openly debating. Yeah. Openly debating. Like people thought that that was like, it, this was at a time, I think, when people really thought the devil needed an advocate, you know? Well, I suppose that's just reinforcing the fact you are in a very conservative part of the country. Well, and, and now I think it's shifted a little bit because, you know, if you look at the map of where people voted in the 2016 election and the, 20, the, the, the 2020 election, uh-huh. the district I live in and grew up in voted majority for both Hillary Clinton and Joe Biden. Oh. They are conservative, but they're not donald trump conservative you know it's uh-huh. like so they would rather vote i think for a traditional liberal than they uh-huh. would for a fascist right so it's like i think it's people who are well-meaning but uneducated and then you know when you're insecure in 13 like it's easy to take that out on somebody and i think mm-hmm. that i definitely wasn't the only one that happened to or things like that i'm sure tons of people got it way worse but i was just glad when i could pass for straight and cisgender to the point where people would just kind of leave me alone that mm-hmm. was like a big thing for me to feel better um about so but i couldn't just, articulate when i was a kid so this would be what the early 2000s late 2000s late 2000s so i mean that's that's not that long ago. Do you no. think if you were were in school today, do you think it would be different? I mean, there, you know, homophobia and transphobia still exists, but it might not have permeated the way that it did mm-hmm. back in you know two thousand eight, two thousand nine. However, you know, there I still know that there are kids who get picked on for gender identity. There, you know are legislators who are trying to not allow trans children to use the bathroom or get health care or participate in the sport of their gender. Yeah, I know. We can, I think let's let's get on to that because that's a fascinating area. You went on from school and we're going to talk more about your experience, but you studied film um, and media at Kansas University. That could have taken you in many different directions, but you focused on directing. What was it that, that led you in that direction? 
Well, it's probably the thing that, you know, has shaped a lot of my life, unknown, unbeknownst to me when I watched this movie, but I watched this movie called Chasing Amy when I was 12 years old, and it was really like this thing when I was having a hard time in school that would make me feel better. And I didn't, I couldn't articulate why, I didn't know why, but, you know, ultimately what it was is that it was a super romantic love story for a kid who desperately wanted to have that romantic kind of love. And it would, was also a really positive portrayal of LGBTQ people in a way that I hadn't really been exposed to. I mean, my mom had a gay best friend and, you know, like I knew that other gay people like existed in the world. But like yeah. I hadn't watched a ton of movies at that point where it was like, hey – like, these people are really smart, they're funny, blah, 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 all that stuff. And I was like, wow, this is really great. And so I really clung to that movie. And it also eventually kind of opened my eyes to the idea that, like, oh, you can be a storyteller professionally. Somebody had to make this. Somebody had to yeah. fund this. Like, people had to show up and, like, make this movie. And so uh, pretty much since that point, I had wanted to become, like, this writer-director type. And I'm thankful that it's worked out so far. I mean – you know, you're very kind to call me successful and things like that, but I think I'm very much still like emerging. You know, like my mm. first feature hasn't come out yet. You know what well, I mean? Well, let's let's just say then you're you're certainly on the path to a successful career. You're, I I certainly hope so. Yeah, but if, I mean, I watched Chasing Amy again at the weekend. I saw I saw it yeah, to age myself. I saw it in the '90s. A great movie, and I I watched it again at the weekend, and forgotten what a brilliantly written tight scripted is and how far ahead of its time it was yeah which is all credit to kevin smith the director and writer i believe the reason for doing this podcast is an exploration serendipity by asking guests who we interview next but it's also i like to understand the serendipitous moments or experiences that occur in people's lives so maybe you could just deconstruct that a little bit more in relation to how your mother helped you the fact you've watched it, I believe, hundreds of times and the why it's had such a sort of a defining impact on you and, and maybe what you're doing now, you should say you're working on your feature. Yeah, well, so when I when I asked my mom like to watch this movie, I was going through like a really big Ben Affleck phase, which to recycle. Oh, so, you re so you really were into Ben Affleck? Yeah, totally. It wasn't just an anecdote from the – it wasn't just like a, a quirky thing to start start the TED Talk with. It was – I had seen Daredevil because my mom took me to see it in That's movie theater. Great, great and film. I was like, this is fucking cool. Oh, my God. It's a blind superhero. Uh -huh. Like I had – you know, I was really into X-Men at that time. I liked comic books. I was getting into all that. But I was like, Ben Affleck's Daredevil. What else has this dude been in? And so, you know, I would watch like as an eight-year-old watch like The Sum of All Fears – changing lanes forces of nature some of those were more interesting to a child than others but i was just like ben affleck awesome and so i was going through my mom's movies one day and she had this dvd of chasing amy and it was from like the criterion collection and i had no idea what that was at that time but i like i saw ben affleck's face on it and i was like oh mom can i watch this and she was like well i don't know it's rated r i don't you know kind of hemming and hawing about it and she's like fine just get you know let me get back to to doing my thing and i was like had okay she, had she watched it yeah 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 but like oh, a yeah. long time ago you know i mean it had been a while and i'm 12 at this point when i'm watching it and so i watch it and i'm just like wow this is blowing my mind it's so romantic like i'm gonna watch it again and again and again and then eventually you know it became like my my big comfort film and it really was like a a guiding force i don't i don't know how to describe it other than it just made me feel okay with myself at mm -hmm. a time where i was like you know considering a lot of self-harm as a result mm -hmm. of like the, the the stuff i was going through at the time like i very much wanted to hurt myself and even kill myself which like at I, age 12 yeah 12 through the rest of high school basically and you know that's it's a lot and mm -hmm. you know it now I feel like that kind of anxiety and depression are kind of written into my DNA a little bit. And it's like, a you know, you got to work to overcome those feelings a lot of mm -hmm. the time. Luckily, I have a very good, happy life. I couldn't have it, you know, much better. You know, I've got the best partner in the world. You know, we got married last year. I've got two great dogs. I've got supportive parents. Like, you know, and I'm, and I'm working with people that I really like on a variety of projects, even from the client side or the independent film side. So things are good now. 
but this movie really just made me feel better about myself when I felt terrible pretty constantly. And so it's like that relationship with the movie really informed, like when I had the opportunity to give my Ted talk, I was like, okay, I I think this is the one story that I'm really qualified to tell. Mm -hmm. And I had been thinking about, because I I graduated from from college and I was like, okay, well, I've done everything I can here. I'm graduated. What do I do now? And so I think at that point, it's really crucial for people who are coming out of any institution or coming out of a job to think about, well, what do I want to do next? And what I wanted to do next was to try to tell this story, even though, though I didn't have aspirations to be like, a documentary filmmaker forever. Like I want to make comedies too. I want to, you know, do a lot of things, but I wanted to make a movie that talked about the impact of this movie uh, among LGBTQ people. And then people heard that pitch and they were like, well, your story needs to be in it because that's the most interesting thing you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. And so I gave this Ted talk, we started production on the documentary and then, you know, very serendipitously or hard work, depending on whose point of view you ask, like, Kevin Smith sees my TED talk the day it comes out with like an hour of it coming online. He like Kevin Smith wrote and directed this movie, like you said before. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted him to see it. I, I made, I, I gave the TED talk for an audience of two myself so that I could <laughs> finally get this weight off my chest. And then Kevin Smith, because I figured this was much better than any intro email. I could try to write him being like, wow. hi, like, would you like to be in this movie? That's brilliant. Yeah, and and the folks at TED were very helpful with that. It was it was really nice, and it's got a good reception. And enough people tweeted it at him where he was like, "Okay, okay, I'll watch the TED talk." And then he reached out and was like, "Hey, I'm, I'd be happy to be in it, and you know, give you emotional support." Where it's like, "Hey, if you're questioning all your life decisions at two a.m., I'm your guy." And I think it's just like so bizarre from the outside <laughs> to mm-hmm. people where it's like I willed this relationship into existence, if you will, but also like there's something really genuine there where like Kevin just made a movie for himself, you know, and it, it reached me beyond, you know, against all odds in his eyes. Right. And now we have this really great rapport and I would call it like a, a mentorship even, you know, he's, mm-hmm. he's very kind to me. He, you know, is always there to answer like a filmmaking question or a personal question or what have you. And he's just been really supportive throughout the process of making this movie. And I'm immensely grateful. So for people that haven't seen Chasing Amy and don't get around to seeing it, can you give uh, just a, a little synopsis of the of the plot and uh, Absolutely. the two the two cat obviously there's the the Ben Affleck sort of main lead yeah. and his the woman he falls in love with called Elisa. Yes. So Chasing Amy is a movie from nineteen ninety seven, it's a rom com and the premise is that a straight man falls in love with a lesbian and basically it's about their friendship and how that friendship eventually develops into a romantic relationship and what happens when you know uh you fall in love with somebody for who they are rather than what they are right yeah and uh, i think the tagline of the movie is actually brilliant it's it says it's not who you love but how and i think it's a really nuanced film and and a great honest take on sexuality it certainly represented how i felt about my own sexuality you know being pansexual meaning that for me it's about the person and Mm -hmm. not about you know the parts they come with right i don't really care about that it's about where are we here mentally emotionally are we in sync things like that and i just thought that that was a really authentic experience that i had watched tons of people disagree with me by the way (laughs) it is considered controversial in some circles but Mm -hmm. The movie really spoke to me, and um, you know, I've never been the same since. Hmm. And that's all that matters. Right. It doesn't matter what other people think. Obviously, when I first watched it, I, I saw it through different eyes, and I watched it from a different perspective at the weekend, having spoken to you already and knowing that you're making a documentary about it. What I loved about it was the way it really confronted at in the 90s, way before any of this was mainstream sort of conversation, societal conventions around what we define as sex and ge- or sex and gender perceptions. And also there was the great scene, a dinner a scene, I, th- I think it was in, I think it was in a restaurant. A diner, di- yeah. Yeah, with Holden's friend. I can't remember his name. And Elisa, it was just a sort of a, her description or representation of uh, sexuality confronted all sort of gender stereotypes. I, th- I thought that was brilliant. And it... 
uh, it's I suppose it, having been brought up in very I don't want to say conservative, but I was brought up in the UK in a quite a traditional sort of upbringing, and therefore you do have these uh, preconceptions that society injects in you and it's and for me i've you know i'm having to reevaluate and re-understand and there's an article i someone sent me recently that i mentioned you before the podcast just about how we think about gender uh and sex and all these things are are requiring us to reevaluate what we've been conditioned to think and I think that's that's certainly it's a it's a real sort of challenge so when I, when you watch films like chasing amy i think that the the power of story and the fact it's a brilliantly told and brilliantly acted f- story and film help you realign and, and and the way you think. So I think it's it's fantastic. So I have to thank you for making me more aware again and making me think differently, which is good. Why do you think, given it that this it, had a sort of an impact on you, and given that we've made some great strides in this area, why do you think we haven't progressed more? What's holding us back? Because we're still clearly, there are a lot of misconceptions. There's huge debates around, like you've been, you talked about, whether it be about participation in sport, whether it be access in the last administration to roles in the military. There seems to be a fear in society yeah. ar- around gender. And you describe it as pan, pan gender. Yeah, I'm pansexual. But pansexual, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, yeah. Why do you think there's such a fear? I don't know why there's such a fear, but I will say that fear is, I think, the root of every poor decision mm-hmm. that somebody makes, right? And I, and I do think that, you know, there's a lot that's got to be fixed, though, to, to find a solution. You know, I don't think people would be as fearful if they felt more secure in themselves, if they felt secure about their place in the world, if they felt secure about, you know, uh, how big their world is, right? So, like, you know, I've met plenty of people in like super small towns that are wonderful and loving and accepting of all kinds of people, including LGBTQ people. Mm-hmm. I also have met people from small towns who were, you know, who are more likely to shout an epithet at me than they are to give me a hug. I've also met those people in big cities and I've met just as many kind people in big cities. It, there's no, it's not, there's no easy answer to this, or maybe we would have figured it out by now, but I do think with education, Because I think that there's a lot of people who think LGBTQ people are new, where it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, they're brand new and they want rights. Wait your turn. (laughs) Like (laughs) like LGBTQ people, gender variance, fluid sexuality, whatever you want to call it, they've existed for as long as people have existed. But like I'm just going to say fascism like Mm -hmm. and this this need for control over people. It, it's it's endlessly damaging and and i think that it's not a pol- it's not necessarily just a political issue people who are libertarians right they want to be left alone right i would like to be left alone i would like for you to not to le- try to legislate me you know i'm mm-hmm. a person i'm not you know i think that there's more common ground so to speak than we think but people's fear and their prejudice gets in the way because they only know what they've been taught or they don't know how to google the right question and things like that yeah. so i do think that there needs to be a really big systemic overhaul in terms of the way that we educate people about trans issues and queer issues things like that because you know, I started a nonprofit called the Transgender Film Center to try to connect trans artists with artist support and money and things like that, right? Mm-hmm. However, most of my conversations seem to be ending up in the direction of trans 101. What is it? You know, because people, they don't know what they don't know and they're fearful, but they have no reason to be fearful because we are just people who would also like to be left alone, not legislated, mm-hmm. and, you know, do the things that we've always done, but without, you know, this like, it's not satanic panic, but it feels very close to it right now. <laughs> yeah. So, so you've mentioned that you're making the documentary. The documentary is called Chasing, Chasing Amy. Yes. Which is fantastic. Thank you. And the fact that Kevin is involved in it. I had a quite actually, just a question for that. He did appear a cameo role in the film, didn't he? He was that silent Bob in the movie, was he? In his, in his oh, film. Oh, in Chasing Amy? Yeah. yeah. He, he's got this big, beautiful monologue about in, Amy. in the diner. Yes, yes about, that's him. And that's where the title Chasing Amy comes from because yeah. it's Silent Bob's character talking about mm. how he lost the love of his life, Amy, 
because he was too small-minded to accept the fact that she'd had a threesome before. Mm-hmm. And this is supposed to be applicable to Holden because Holden is too afraid of how small his life experience has been compared to Alyssa's and acts out due to that insecurity. And so mm-hmm. he's trying to say, don't be insecure. And then Holden just takes the, the completely wrong message away from that monologue. Yeah, that's it. Do you know if that was a, a, a true experience on Kevin's part? I don't know. I'd be, you know, I'd be fascinated to find out. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to ask him, but I mean, yeah. Chasing Amy is a very personal film, so yeah. he may have drawn that from his own experience or somebody else's life experience, but, you know, I think it's, or maybe he just made it up. He's a very creative mm-hmm. guy, so, but I do think that, you know, that movie is extremely honest, so maybe if it didn't happen to him, it still feels real. Yeah, so before we talk about the other work that you're doing with yeah. the Transgender Film Centre... Where are you with the um, production on Chasing Chasing Amy and when when we expect to see it in theatres? Gosh, I hope to see it in 2022 and that somebody wants to put it in a movie theater. But right now we're in post-production, but we're still filming some stuff because the pandemic kind of screwed up our schedule. We thought we'd be done at a certain time, but as with a doc, you can't overproduce a documentary and it feel real, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's just waiting for certain things to happen, so to speak. But it's been it's been a really great process and I'm really lucky to work with the people I work with on it. It's really nice. And can you give us sort of an idea as to whether uh, Holden makes an appearance? You know, fingers <laughs> crossed. I mean, from <laughs> your lips to God or whoever's out there's ears, because I think that it would be a great idea for Holden to appear in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I think so as well. Isn't it funny that Ben's had such a successful and prolific career, and I haven't seen... Elisa, the act, uh, I can't remember her name now. Joey Lauren Adams. Jo- yeah, I haven't seen her in anything else. Not that I can remember. Uh, she was in Big Daddy. She was in Dazed and Confused, Mallrats, um, Biodome. She did a lot of like movie work in the 90s. And then she also had an incredible uh, film that she directed that premiered at Sundance a few years later. I mean, she and she's directing, you know, she had a TV show called Still the King that she did a couple episodes for, I think that was with uh, Billy Ray Cyrus. I mean, she stays working, but she's just as brilliant now as she was back then. I mean, you know, she was a a homewrecker, so to speak, on Grey's Anatomy and and tried to break up like one of the most popular couples on there. I mean, she's but she stays working. Mm. She stays booked. And it's still just as exciting to watch her act now as it was, you know, watching her in Chasing Amy. I mean, she's got this raw vulnerability that is just endlessly engaging. Yeah, there was definitely something very sort of magnetic about her performance, that's for sure. Okay, well, we'll let us know when the, the film's available and we'll make a little announcement on the podcast. I really look forward to seeing it. Your other work, your films and your stories, you're you're helping to build more representation for marginalised communities. And as you say, you've created this non-profit. How do you manage to take on something like that? Because that in itself would be almost like a career move alongside making your own films and maintaining your own writing how do you how how do you balance it it's really hard it's really hard i mean i started it and i was like okay this is gonna be tough but like managing it for real i mean i'm the only employee so to speak of the transgender film center Mm -hmm. and so i mean it's a lot of development it's a lot of time it's a lot of my free time that i put into it and i still feel like we're behind schedule but you know it's it's I think it's important though if we can get this up and running and hopefully one day have an executive director that's not me where we can really build this into something where this is artist support and it's it's a place that trans people can go and reliably get their films funded. I would love that. So it's it's difficult, but it's worth the time because it's really important. Jen Richards said in the brilliant documentary Disclosure, which I encourage everybody to watch on Netflix for Trans Movies 101. You learn a lot watching that movie. She brilliantly talks about you know the issue with like uh, cisgender people playing trans people and effectively how people register that is like okay i'm watching a movie that's supposed to be about a trans woman here's eddie redmayne playing that trans woman Mm -hmm. what they ultimately end up thinking is trans women are men in dresses instead of what they are women and so This results in real harm, specifically for trans women of color, but trans women and trans people more generally speaking, because what they think when they see that is like if they're attracted to a trans person, they think, oh, I'm gay. And Mm -hmm. then with that comes sometimes harm, 
or even murder of trans people. And again, specifically and more devastatingly, trans women of color. And Mm -hmm. so the movies that we watch and the media we consume has a real impact on my community. And so I feel like it's my job as somebody with a little bit of momentum, a little bit of resources to try to use that to fund as many trans people's work as possible so that we're not stuck in this endless cycle of, oh, well, there's nobody qualified. There's Mm -hmm. nobody to do this. Well, there's only this one or two trans people that we can go to with these credits, right? We want to empower these creators to tell their own stories and to tell more nuanced stories about trans people that's not just a coming out story. What is it like for a trans person to fall in love and being trans isn't the obstacle? You know, what is it like to have a trans lead character or supporting character where you don't really have to talk about how trans they are? What happens when you put trans people in a comedy and they're not the butt of the joke? You know, Mm -hmm. like Soap Dish, that's a perfectly lovely movie until the very end, and then it's devastating. You know what I mean? What's it called? Soap Dish. Soap Dish. It has Robert Downey Jr., and it's, I think it's from the 80s or 90s, I can't remember. But that's a movie where it has like a quote-unquote trans reveal that somebody in the movie is trans. And then it's like, or Ace Ventura. It's a perfect example that they use in Disclosure, where it's like, the end gag is that she's trans, and that makes people throw up. And it's bad messaging and it sends a bad message that, oh, you're supposed to be repulsed by trans people, mm-hmm. which no, you don't have to be and you shouldn't be because we're around trans people are around all the time. You just don't know that you've met them. Right. Yeah. I mean, you've been in the bathroom plenty of times with trans people and there's never been an issue. You probably, you know, you could have played a pickup basketball game with a trans person and never have known. And yeah, as you say, you're right. Bathrooms, bars, wherever we've been. It's much more common than the media make it out to be. Right. And now now there there are 12 trans guys on TV right now. That's amazing. That has never happened before that there are that many trans men on TV. We've largely been invisible, you know, and, and when trans- you say on when you say on TV, you mean on on as acting or as presenters acting? acting. acting. Yeah, that's and, good. Yeah. I mean, like, but that kind of representation is important because like I didn't know I was trans for a really long time because I didn't know you could be uh-huh. trans with the messaging that there was out there. Typically, how I saw trans people on TV was disproportionately portrayed as sex workers or it was something gross. And so you kind of have to unlearn all that shame and stuff when you realize you're trans. And it's like, okay, how am I going to come out? How am I going to do all this stuff? But I'm very excited for the next generation of people who feel like they can come out because they saw somebody friendly on TV who was trans. Like, stuff matters. It's why it's so important is is educational. Mm -hmm. And I think when you, you know, we're... So many of us are either through our education, our parental upbringing, or through just the media are conditioned to think in a certain way. And a generation of filmmakers, let's face it, in Hollywood, particularly in comedy, would be conditioned by their upbringing and would create scripts and it would be signed, commissioned and it would go on television doing exactly what you said, which is portraying trans people in the way that they should be portrayed. And it is so there is hope that things are changing and the work that you're doing is important that will hopefully a generation down the line will start to see some further progress. I was interviewed last week, two weeks ago, sorry, Mason Zayed, and she's a stand-up comedian, Palestinian with cerebral palsy. And she shakes all the time. And she's appeared in General Hospital as a plays a part in that. And she said, you know, it's bad for transgender. She said, "You, you can't see people with disabilities like a cerebral palsy as an on tv and she said that has to stop you know so it's it's happening in multiple areas right that there needs to be a sort of a change to create more authenticity and a true reflection of society and what we see in the media because until that happens there won't be acceptance absolutely and i think that you know any marginalized community really pushing for the right to be seen and valued and hired and paid appropriately mm-hmm. for their work and their labor and for authenticity you know it's a, that's another word that gets overused but you know yeah. that's it's really it's important. It's important not just for trans people, not just for queer people, for any marginalized community, whether you know you're black, Latinx, mm-hmm. or Latino. A lot of people, I've I've heard mixed things of how people feel about a, a gender neutral yeah. Latino term, but from Latino people. But you know, dis, disability communities, things like that. Like this stuff's really important. And when you see something that's 
clearly honest and representative of an experience. Mm -hmm. Like it blows your mind. I saw CODA at Sundance this year. CODA stands for child of deaf, deaf adults. I believe that's what that stands for. Please don't, Mm -hmm. please don't come for me if I'm wrong. I will Google it after, but like that movie was beautiful. It was a beautiful movie. Marley Matlin was amazing in it. I mean, there's just, there's a lot to be excited about on the, when it comes to the, people of these marginalized backgrounds from these communities going out and, and telling authentic stories. I have no idea who, if the director is uh, a child of a deaf adult or anything like that, but having deaf people in that movie, they stole the show. These actors who besides Marley Matlin, I hadn't seen before they stole the whole show. It's like when you give people the opportunity to mm-hmm. tell their stories, like, usually works out and it's not just like a moral thing or that you should do it like people pay money to see these movies because they're starved for content in these areas they want to see these movies they will show up and support them as long as they're authentic you know and so it's really exciting to see things start to change in that in that direction is there a transgender film festival is there a transgender film festival yeah there are a couple of them we don't put one on but there are a couple out there that you can definitely support Sometimes people will apply to like our initiatives now, which is really helpful. However, I I typically try to jury a few festivals every year to see like, okay, who who do I need to look out for? I will ask my film festival organizer friends who I should be looking out for. Mm -hmm. If there are any films that have caught their eye, things like that. And sometimes I'm playing in the same blocks as them as a filmmaker. Um, And I haven't had a short on the festival circuit in a few years now uh, that I've attended a festival with because there's been a pandemic, but you know, it's a, it's a really great way to see like, okay, who's making the kind of content I really respond to who's making films that, you know, deserve to be celebrated, but they're not who's like on the precipice of something incredible. So just being out in these people has been really helpful, but also now we have initiatives that they can come to us. And so we can track them and, and make sure that we can support whatever they're doing next. Interesting global trends, things outside the U.S. I, I mean, I've having lived here for close on eleven years now, mm. um, and I used to criticise the U.S. when I li- didn't live here when I was dealing with my American colleagues and advertising agencies, saying there's there's America and there's offshore, <laughs> and it does, but it does feel that way a lot of the time that um, everyone's concentrated inward, yet so much progress has happening in the transgender space around the world in other more progressive countries. Mm. And then, of course, we're seeing the, the, the countries that are anywhere near progressive, like Russia and, and what's, uh, without getting into the specifics, there's, yeah. there's a lot of work to be done in some of these other countries. Yeah. But are you, can you, do you, do you, are you seeing any filmmakers emerge or any content creators emerge in other countries where progress is being made? It's a great question. I do. So for our first round of the Trailblazer Grant, which is our annual fund that we give out to uh, trans filmmakers to go out and make their project or assist with finishing funds, things like that. Um, we we had it be U.S. only because it, we were brand new and we were like, OK, I don't really know the legalities of sending money <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. abroad just yet but now we've got more I've got more infrastructure in terms of support and teams and and people who can help me with things like that however I'm sure there are really incredible filmmakers uh, who are trans who are making brilliant films that I just haven't seen yet Um, Mm -hmm. typically you know being being from the literal middle of America you know a lot of my focus is like okay what's happening here but my wife is from Mexico City my dad is from Australia you know we definitely have a global perspective in my household and so Mm -hmm. it's always a great challenge to like look outward and to think like okay what's going on in Australia what's going on in Mexico City what's going on you know with uh, Yana in Bulgaria who were people Mm -hmm. I should be tracking there and so I really rely on my my network for that reason to be like hey have you heard anything do you know of any films I should be watching so I wish I had a better answer but I'm a dumb American so uh, looking forward, mm-hmm. um, once chase, let's say chasing Amy's out, mm-hmm. um, you may progress. You hire, you get a dev person on board for your transgender film center. You're raising money. Where do you see yourself being over the next, let's say, five to ten years? Where would you like to go? 
<sighs> Where would I like to be in the next five to ten years? I would like, and and the reason I'm saying yeah. it, and you you made a this slight quip, you imagine, but basically you imagined chasing chasing Amy into reality. You know the fact that you did get Kevin Smith. So these things happen. That's serendipity. Oh yeah. So you you've made that happen. What's the next big thing you're going to make happen? Well, the, I, the w- willing it into existence. Well, Mark, I do want to say I'm a big believer in manifesting. I, I, I didn't. I, I don't know if I believed in it before, but with this whole chasing, chasing Amy journey, I'm like, okay, like if you really set your mind to something and will it into existence, like this is this is a thing that's possible. So, mm-hmm. where I would like to be is I would like for chasing, chasing Amy to resonate with people. It doesn't have to make a billion dollars or anything. I just want it to resonate with people and show people. Hey, this guy can direct a movie. He can tell a story, a very specific story. And then hopefully that'll get me funding for my next couple of narrative features and that I can continue developing documentary stuff. And then eventually what I'd like to do is be a showrunner. I'd like to showrun some comedy shows and things like that. I'd like to to be able to put the stories that have lived in my brain for so long or the stories that I just came up with in the shower that are way better than anything I've been thinking about for the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like. I'd like to be able to put those out into the world and hire people and and make a real difference in terms of how our hiring practices can be different. I'd like to hire as many LGBTQ people as possible for this. I'd like to give people a platform to grow their own careers because let me tell you, man, I've got a lot to pay forward. People have been very kind to me. And so that's really, it's really, really important to me to be able to, to parlay any, any success I have and any, opportunities i have to be selfish and tell whatever stories i'm thinking of right to use Mm -hmm. that to to hire you know more trans people more queer people more people from these other marginalized communities that historically get left out like i'd like to be the change you want to be you want to see in the world right like that's that's that like a an old saying right i'd like to put my money where my mouth is for that and tell really funny stories including trans people where trans people are not the butt of the joke i think that there's and the more that i think we can tell comedies or we can present comedies with lgbtq people in them in that fashion I think that's going to give that's going to build a lot of goodwill for people who don't think they know queer people, who don't think they know trans people. And mm-hmm. so taking a funny story, putting, you know, my community in it and it not being just all about, you know, the worst things that have ever happened to us, that's what I want for myself. And then of course, I'd like to have a, a house um in Los <laughs> Angeles and maybe an, or an apartment in New York. I'm I'm fine with either where I can live and not never have to move again with my pugs and with my wife that is what i want for my life <laughs> sounds pretty perfect the only thing i'd swap there is say a house in new york and an apartment in los angeles <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's good um well i part of the thing i do with the impossible network is to look where there are opportunities to connect other guests mm-hmm. and people in the network so as you were talking mm-hmm. i was thinking about one of my early interviews with with uh, colby Gaines. Mm-hmm. who runs a production company called Backroads Entertainment in Austin, Texas. And he's big into comedy, and he's done a lot of scripted. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> work people like um, 50 Cent on uh, on VAT Channel. Um, he's done a ton. Uh, used to run Left Field Productions, sold it to ITV. Um, but he'd be a good connection for you so I'll connect you to Colby and the other is a guy called Tobias DeGraff he's not been a guest but he used to be head of um, sales for BBC Worldwide and now he's got his own representation company and he looks to get um, content commissioned and on to Amazon and to Netflix so I think he'd be a good connection for you to basically pitch your Chasing Amy to him and he's a really nice guy um, writing all this down and i you know i appreciate that mark and I, I think what you do with with this show is really rad because you know i, I didn't know what we were going to talk about before you said you know you're very kind to like send questions ahead of time because i'm very much an off-the-cuff kind of dude normally but <laughs> i i do want to say that like the concept of like networking i feel like there's a lot of misconceptions around it and i know i'm preaching to the choir here but this is what i always have to tell people is like it's just making friends it's yeah. it's making friends professionally. That's what good networking is. And it's being genuine about it. Like, you know, like, what can you do for me? But like, what can I do for you? How can I be of service mm-hmm. to you? I want to learn about you. 
And that's like just being a genuine human being. And so a lot of people are like, you're great at networking, which is funny to me because I grew up with like not a ton in the way of like friends, uh-huh. right? And, and so what you have here is really spectacular because you're giving people an opportunity to not only you're not only making more friends yourself, but you're Mm -hmm. giving the other people the opportunities to connect with each other and be like, okay, like, you know, maybe this will work out professionally, but maybe we'll just hit it off. Like that's Mm -hmm. really exciting. And I'm kind of jealous. I didn't think of this podcast idea before you did. I'm like, just like (laughs) kicking myself over (laughs) here. (laughs) Well, Unreal, thank you for the kind words. Um, I'm conscious of time. So I'm going to ask you the last couple of questions before we get into the quick fire. What would you like to see happen? Um, in education in schools to ensure kids avoid experiencing what you experienced? Schools need to teach sex education in a way that is inclusive of LGBTQ people. You can't just teach it how you've been teaching it and expect kids to to feel okay about how they're feeling. You need to teach them about different kinds of sex and what that is and how to be safe about doing it. You need to teach them about when you're te- talking about HIV and AIDS, you need to talk about the history of it with yeah. it. I think that's going to be, that's really, really important. And you also need to tell people about gender variance. You need to talk about trans stuff. You need to talk, and you need to be well-versed in the language of it. And so I think if people were taught that at this very vulnerable age from like 12 to 13, when they're figuring out social dynamics and they're figuring out a lot about themselves, it would save people a lot of pain, <laughs> a lot of mm-hmm. heartbreak, and it would be a way to teach a new generation from the get, like these different things that are considered taboo in public schools or private schools, what have you, mm-hmm. that their parents probably don't often talk to them about if they don't have that life experience or don't know somebody with it. And so it's really vital to start introducing that into the curriculum to make sure that queer kids and trans kids feel really safe. Great, great answer. Um you're a creator and when you're dealing with a blank slate and you've got a, a blank sheet of paper and about to start something, you have to confront your fears. Um, you're always facing um, the potential for failure. So what's your attitude to fear, failure and risk? You know, for me, when I start writing, I definitely fear. I, I feel that fear because mm-hmm. you don't want to write. You don't want to write something bad, but almost every first draft is, is bad, right? For me, fear is mitigated when I'm really honest with myself. and But that comes with having to overcome a ton of fear as well. So I'll give you an example. My writing partner and I wrote a, a screenplay called I Love You, Margot Robbie. And the premise is that there's this 15-year-old trans boy who, mm-hmm. whose best friend is an imaginary version of A-list actor Margot Robbie. And so yeah. his you know unconscious is projecting out to give him this friend at a time where he really needs one. And it's about that journey that he goes on. I had this idea for years and originally it started with like a queer girl. And this is before I came out mm-hmm. and I could not write the damn screenplay. It, I tried to write it by myself. I tried to write it with another friend. I could not, but when I came out as trans and I confronted this thing that had been like eating at me away for eating away at me for so long and there's a lot of reasons not to come out, but at a certain point, none of them were good enough anymore. And I'm telling you, like, as soon as I started being honest with myself, I started to get more comfortable in my body. I started to acknowledge things about myself that I had long repressed. Mm-hmm. I, I met with my friend Taylor, who I met at the Outfest Fellowship in LA. I was like, I have this idea for a movie. I cannot find a happy spin on it. It's supposed to be a comedy. All I feel is sad. I'm still working out all my trans feelings. Can you help me? And within like a day, we had figured out like a happy pitch on it. And then within three weeks, the thing was written. Uh-huh. And that's a small personal triumph. We'll see if that movie ever becomes anything. If we have to replace Margot Robbie with somebody who would actually want to be in our movie. But I'm manifesting that. I'm, I'm being self-deprecating, but I am trying to manifest that. All that to say is that I have found when you're super honest with yourself about where you are, who you are, mm-hmm what your shortcomings are, where your strengths are. And you try to assess that and put it into practice for your own creative work. It opens up a lot more possibilities. I know it's like, it's like, uh, it's that thing of you have to love yourself before you're going to love somebody else. Nobody wants to be with a person who doesn't love themselves. And it's the same thing for a creative practice. You can't, 
put pour all of your creative energy into something and make something incredible. And if you do, you probably still have issues you have to work out before you can potentially go on to the next thing. Cause you can't make the lives of people you work with miserable. You can't be miserable yourself while you're making it, or you're just going to have those bad feelings. Even if it comes out great, like you have to work on yourself before you can find any kind of, I don't know, happiness in your creative pursuit. I, I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it does. Yeah, let's let's go to the quick fire questions. I'm sorry, um, I talk a lot. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's great. It's good. Um, what principles do you stand by? Do the right thing even when nobody's watching. That's nice. Um, what about the hard choices you've had to make that might have been tough at the time, but looking back, turned out to be the right decision? When... A couple of years ago, in 2018, a friend of mine wanted me to produce his movie, and I was like all for it. I was getting, I was getting ready. I was ready to do it, and then I was going through a really hard time though because there was a lot going on with me, and it was personal. And it was like I've mm. got to work this shit out before I can be a good collaborator. And this was the time I was starting to realize that. And so I said no to producing the movie, and then two months later, I got the call from Ted after I'd worked a lot of my shit out. <laughs> And they were like, come do a TED Talk, come move to New York City, Adobe's going to pay for it. So mm-hmm. it was the hard thing at the time. I made the right decision for me. I feel bad that I wasn't able to collaborate with him, but it was really important that I took that step. Okay. All right. Um, where do you go? Um, I mean, obviously, differently in, in Kansas. I go in the shower. And I don't have any music on. I don't do anything. I'm just left alone with my thoughts. And then mm-hmm. usually I can come up with a good idea. Okay. All right. What's the one big problem in society worth solving? Fascism. I've not had that answer before, but it's a good one. If you could invite four people around to dinner, it could be from history, it could be from now, who would they be? Um, Obama, because he's practical. Uh-huh. It's pretty practical. Kevin Smith, because he might be say something so crazy. <laughs> or he might just embarrass himself in front of Obama, and I'll have a story about that later. And my mom. She's a she's a pragmatist, and she gets stuff done. Oh, wait. So, oh, wait. Four people, not including myself. Four. George Carlin. Ah, okay. Yep. I think it would so- it'd be a mess, but I think we could actually get something done with, yeah. with all that. It's a good enough network. Yeah. Very interesting. Okay. Who's made you reevaluate yourself? My wife. Because mm-hmm. when we started dating, I was like, something's wrong here, but it's not you. It's me. And that's when I figured out I was trans. Yeah. Okay. Um, impossible question. Someone could be of any age has got a big dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but has been told by someone or people around them, forget it. It's impossible. Fuck that. Go do it. <laughs> no, go do um, it. I mean, manifesting works, apparently. I'm proof of it. I think you're proof mm-hmm. of it, Mark. If, you've, if you're really serious and passionate about something, let that guide you. And then also yeah. be a lifelong learner because you will not mm-hmm. succeed if you think you know everything. You have to have enough mm-hmm. arrogance to pursue that dream with fairly reckless abandon, but also the self-awareness to know you don't know anything and you need to mm-hmm. keep learning and keep working and listen to, you know, listen to certain people and then leave other people who give you bad advice behind and, you know, trust your gut. I mean, that's a lot of conflicting advice, but you have to do it in order to get to where you want to go, in my opinion. Mm. I don't think it's conflicting. I think what you said complements, um, it's all complimentary. So I think it's good. Good. Great answer. Um, We're coming out of lockdown. Um, We certainly are here in New York. I was in a bar last night and in the cinema without a mask. Uh, So you're going to karaoke. What's your go-to karaoke song? Vienna. I think it's the one song in my vocal range, Billy Joel. Ah, right. Okay. And then yep. people will okay. sing along and they're like grabbing their buddy and they're drunk and they're just doing this. It's their sway inside. It's nice. Yeah. Okay. Best recent series film you've seen during the lockdown that people might not have seen that you think they should. Just watch Girls 5 Eva on Peacock. It's a great show about an obscure uh, girl group that tries to make a comeback in their 40s. It is, it's a new show from Tina Fey and Meredith Cardino. I loved it. Uh-huh. Great cast, great chemistry. And it's called Girls 5 Eva with an A at the end. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's super sweet and super fun. In terms of the best movie I've watched in lockdown, I recently watched Jim Falls Trick from 1999, which is all about two gay guys trying to find a place to hook up, and they kind of fall in love in the process of that. I thought it was very 
of that time, beautifully done, and uh, mm-hmm. I'm excited to see whatever sequel they're coming up with. Nice. Okay, I'll put those in the show notes. Um, we offer a book to anyone that comes up with a good comment in the Instagram or on the website. Uh, what book do you want us to offer? Oh, let's do Redefining Realness by Janet Mock. Okay. Cool. And our final question, who should we interview next? Great question. Um, Keith Kirkland was in my TED residency group. He is the CEO of WearWorks, which is a haptic. Have you already done, Keith? Tick. Yeah. Fuck. Okay. (laughs) Fuck. I was like, he's important. He's like doing something really important. God damn it. Okay. Hmm. How about Katrina Conan and Real? Have you done her? Okay, she used to work at the TED residency. She's worked with uh, Yana, Keith, and myself on Mm -hmm. helping us develop our TED Talks. She now works at Chief, which is kind of like, it's like this uh, women's group um, that really is all about professional development and empowerment. She is amazing, um, and she, she, she means the world to me. I think she'd be a really cool person to interview. Okay, well, we'll um, follow up later and ask you to make that connection. Excellent. Look forward to it. Okay. Well, I'll just wrap up and um, thank you very much, um, Sav, for your, I mean, your your candor, the integrity of your answers, and to acknowledge you just that you're clearly uh, on a journey towards success, wherever that's wherever it will take you uh, I think it is something we have to acknowledge is coming through your just perseverance and your your positive will and acknowledge you for your manifestation uh, and your manifesting uh, because I think more more people have that belief in the power of manifesting uh, realities um, we'll have a better a happier more fulfilled society so just keep doing it and uh, look forward to following your journey Thank you, Mark. And I want you to know that I really appreciated your time today. You are so passionate about this podcast, but you're such a genuine person. I've, I've really enjoyed getting to talk with you in the, mm-hmm. you know, the pre-interview you do and mm-hmm. our email correspondence, but also this interview. And, and I just want to thank you for taking the time to, to highlight what I'm trying to do. No, well, it's good. It's important work. So great. Well, um, enjoy the rest of your time in Kansas. And uh, if you're in New York, um, Give us a shout. We'll grab a beer. And uh, if I happen to find myself in Kansas at any time, I'll I'll give you a shout. Yes, please hit me up anytime, man. I sincerely really enjoyed this. So thank you so much. Cool. Great. All right, then. All right. Cool. Have a great day. Uh, Okay. Bye. Okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network, or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.